Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. Today, we are having a chat with uh, Stefan Gerlach. So Stefan Gerlach is the EFG chief economist and uh, a former central banker. So um, we're looking to to cover some kind of really key things that people are thinking about today. Something that worries about inflation in the short term, yield curve and, and what that's telling us. And then really what the central bankers are thinking around the world. So we're going to going to delve from uh, the US to Japan and everywhere in between in terms of uh, the central bank. So uh, let's uh, speak to Stefan. Stefan, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. Thank you very much. Um, I still I, I still remember the podcast we did last summer, still one of my favorites. And I recall the discussion we had about the um, Bank of Mauritius. And uh, what was the comment you made to me? I said that, uh, so then I was a member of the, uh, an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee, and I said we didn't have the best Monetary Policy Committee, but we had the best tanned Monetary Policy Committee, Absolutely. I think. Yeah, that was definitely one of my favorites from uh, from uh, comments from last year, but uh, yeah, that, was, uh, that was very interesting. But uh, That was fun. I mean, yes, to be, to be clear about it, I was actually very supportive of the Monetary Policy Committee. The central bankers across the world, you know, they are smart everywhere. It's not that there is a difference sort of in their understanding of the problems or so at all. I learned an, an amazing amount there. there. It was one of my formative experiences, actually, I must I must say. That I, sort of, I sort of missed my trips to, uh, to Mauritius. <laughs> I think we all miss a trip to Mauritius at the moment, given the, uh, given the lockdowns. Uh, so um, obviously a very, very interesting time in, in financial markets, very interesting time with this big debate around inflation. Do we have it? Don't we have it? You know, the, the Financial Times recently wrote a piece in the Financial Times about it more recently, which has been unbelievably quoted amongst uh, amongst our clients. Let's go straight into the, the key topic here. Stefan, do we have an inflation problem? So I don't think we will, we don't have an inflation problem right now. And I don't think uh, we will have one either. But I think in the next couple of months, maybe um, there will be there may be many people saying, "I I told you so." Is my is my short answer to that question. Mm-hmm. So what's going on right now is that sort of twelve months ago, last year, we had falling price levels, so falling inflation rates in a number of countries before COVID. And of course, if you compute inflation over twelve months, those observations will tend to drop out now, and therefore measured inflation rates will start to pick up. And I think I think some people will say these are the first indications that we're slipping into a high inflation environment. I don't think we will. I think there will just be sort of a uh, a return to pre- to previous uh, inflation rates. I don't think this is the start of something uh, or something new. It's always a problem um, in the real world to distinguish between inflation, which we think of as a continuous or an ongoing long-term process in which prices are rising, and price-level shocks that just raise inflation rates or lower inflation rates for 12 months, and then they drop out of the the calculation. The latter things, these price-level shocks, are actually not very important. 
um, you can just disregard them because they disappear on their own. Their role in, in accounting for swings in inflation is actually very, very large. Most of the movements that we see in inflation are due to price level shocks that are not uh, that are not dangerous. Um, we are trying to spot uh, so changes in the underlying uh, rates of inflation. They're very hard to spot, um, and uh, yeah, it's a hard. Uh, it's not easy to do, and it's very easy to confuse these two things when you look at the at the data. Obviously, one of the indicators that um, investors are looking at is the uh, steepening of uh, the yield curves, and not just in the U.S. but everywhere actually. But obviously, there is quite a big difference between a yield curve that's steepening because of reflation versus a yield curve that's steepening because of inflation yes and uh, yes. and i think there is a quite a key point that um, maybe investors are getting a little bit um confused about maybe you can describe to us kind of what are the recovery norms of a yield curve and what does history tell us about what the yield curve is telling us at the moment so if you if you look at the slope of the uh, of the yield curve and you can look at several different measures of the slope of the yield curve the Fed uh, tends to look at, this, at the difference between 10-year uh, Treasury yields and three-month Treasury yields, but you can look at three, uh, 10 years and, and two years or, or yeah, practically any other segment. These things are quite, uh, quite strongly correlated. What we normally see is that when the economy is heading into a recession, the, the term structure becomes inverted, and then it starts sort of to turn north again, start to be, uh, turn positive. And quite rapidly positive um, as the economy exits, uh, or actually as it goes into the recession and then starts to exit the recession. So the fact that the term structure is now steepening quite rapidly is, I think, uh, a, a common phenomenon. We've seen this many times as the economy is is recovering from a sharp a sharp downturn. I mean, the last time I looked at the data, the spread between ten-year yields and uh, three-month yields. It was around 100 basis points. Normally, this process continues uh, up until the spread is something like 350, 400 basis points, something like that. Uh, so I think this is something that has quite some distance to uh, quite some distance to run. Now, I tend to think that the slope of the ter- of the term structure is principally an indicator of economic recovery. The sort of signal in the slope of the term structure sends about future inflation pressures is much is much less much less clear. Of course, when the economy recovers, the inflation rates uh, then also tend to recover, so they are correlated. But I think of it principally as a as an indicator of economic, real economic recovery. Um, and uh, as, I, as I said, I think this has quite some distance to run. I guess the other thing that we've seen, obviously, this big rise in commodity prices, certainly on a year-on-year basis, you look at uh, oil prices, the obvious one, it was you know, negative, um, or close. You know, we went negative yes. for, for a little while, as you quite rightly said a little bit earlier. The year-on-year inflation numbers start to be exaggerated as a result of these of, of these effects. Obviously, central banks just view these, and I think you just described earlier as transitory. Is that correct, or, or do you think they might interpret it differently this time around? So I, uh, yeah, they basically say we have to quote unquote look through these uh, price uh, price level shocks, as they uh, as they put it. I think that's the way they will see it. And if you listen to what the Fed is saying now, they don't signal any concern about uh, about inflation. I think their sense is, and I think that's the sense that we have uh, we have in the team here. 
that uh, this is largely an indication of economic require, uh, recovery and uh, there is no, and that of course will lead to uh, to uh, to a rise in inflation going forward. And but this is no indication of a, a you know a shift to a to a much more infl- inflationary environment. Um, and I think one reason that is so is that if you go back and look at when did we last have a serious widespread inflation problem in uh, in Western Europe, North America, and that was in the nineteen seventies. And there were very particular circumstances then. You'll be the first to uh, to, to tell me there was also oil prices, so energy prices going up. And that is certainly true, but it was also an episode where central banks didn't really know what to do. They had two objectives that they were then conflicting. Um, on the one hand, uh, they wanted to prevent the inflation from um, exploding, and some central banks did a lot better than others, um, Germany, for instance, and uh, and Switzerland. Uh, but on the other side, some central banks wanted to prevent a deep recession, and that sort of uh, suggested that they should not have a very a very uh, tight monetary policy. And the central banks that did this, uh, in the Nordic countries, the UK, and so on, they experienced inflation surges. So this was partially something that came out of policy. Um, there are a number of other factors that I, that I may have played a role then. For instance, central banks were not generally not independent in those years. Well, some central banks were. For instance, the Bundesbank was independent, etc. But in a number of countries, the uh, monetary policy, the interest rate was set by the Minister of Finance. Clearly, politicians are more worried about unemployment rates than they are about uh, inflation. So this all made for an episode of monetary policy was not sufficiently tight and inflation sort of exploded. It's very unlikely the central banks would do the same mistake now. Um, they are much, it's much clearer now what happens if you don't tighten monetary policy. And central banks are well aware of that. While monetary policy may not be very effective in stimulating inflation, this is the saying about you can't push on a string, it is certainly very effective in, in, in slowing down inflation, something that we so demonstrated in the U.S. in the early 1980s when Chairman Falker single-handedly clobbered inflation in just a couple of in just a couple of years. So I think it's very unlikely that we will return to a situation in the 1970s style inflation with inflation of 10 percent a year. So you tend to agree that the other argument that people use is just the amount of government debt that's been issued. Uh, certainly over the last few years and certainly over the last 12 months uh, with all the s- stimulus that's been applied. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so government debt, I think a number of people say, well, you know, wouldn't it be as tempting to sort of inflate this all the way? And central banks must understand that, you know, this would be great for the government that, uh, if one could do this and, and so on and so forth. But the answer is that this is not, um, that is not that easy uh, to do a- anymore. First of all, if you go back and look historically, so basically we had two episodes. We had three episodes of massive public debts. The first one was after World War One. The second was after World War Two, and then we have the current situation. And what happened after World War Two is that uh, this was essentially inflated away and grown away. There was rapid growth uh, in the 1960s and so on. But now, if you sort of think about what happened there, was First of all, financial markets were not at all uh, expecting uh, inflation. There was not too much focus on inflation in mod markets then. They reacted slowly and so on. But of course now markets are hypersensitive to inflation. 
So you cannot really sort of surprise them. You cannot sort of rise. You, can, you, you cannot run an expansionary monetary policy in the hope of generating a burst of inflation. Uh, sort of surprise the markets with this because the markets will not be surprised. They are very careful about this. They know this has happened once in the past. Um, yeah, you cannot surprise the markets um, in the in the uh, in the same way. Secondly, if you go back to the fifties and sixties and seventies. Because of the large public that financial institutions, banks in particular, they were regulated in such a way as they were required them to hold public debt. Um, and when inflation set in, they couldn't sort of sell out of their positions. They had to hold it, and they, the debt was deflated away. In a modern, uh, liberalized financial system, this is not uh, this is not possible anymore. You can't compel people to hold government bonds at yields that is below, far below the rate of inflation. So that mechanism is not on, um, operative anymore. And I think generally the, uh, the, the, the maturity structure of public debt is not one in which you can um, yes, sort of easily de- uh, inflate the debt away. It takes some, some time for, in, for inflation to sort of accelerate uh, or, or to rise. Um, and given the average maturity structure of the, pub, of the public debt, you know, the, the current bonds sort of come, come due in a, on average in a couple of years, and then perhaps inflation hasn't risen that far, and the markets uh, will not want to refinance the government. So this mechanism of sort of generating a surprise burst of inflation, they just deflate away the debt, that is much harder to do um, in practice than is publicly uh, appreciated, I think, by many commentators. So that is not something that I think is, is about to happen. So let's turn our attention to um, recent uh, commentary. Obviously, we've had uh, Powell has been uh, on the decks over the last uh, few days. Any sort of um, significant observations from your side? I think, yeah, I think it's sort of more, uh, more sort of the same message as uh, he started following the Fed's the uh, review of its monetary policy framework uh, that I announced. I think it was last uh, Jackson Hole. I think it was I mean. 2020, perhaps in 2019, I can't, I can't remember now. Um, the first said basically that they don't have to worry so much about the inflationary consequences of running tight, uh, tight labor markets because the Phillips curve, the relationship between the labor market and inflation rate, that mechanism has become much weaker. Um, so running a, t- a tight labor market isn't the inflation risks are much smaller and therefore they will not just tighten monetary policy once the labor market starts to tighten, but they will wait until this tightening actually feeds into inflation, which it may or may not uh, may or may not do. He's repeating that message. He's also saying a tight labor market is very good uh, for economically weaker groups, and his uh, low income earners. He's talking about the African American community other minorities and, and so on. And uh, the Fed seems to take the view that you can actually run a very tight labor market. You won't trigger much inflation. But this has enormous benefits for the weakest in society. Um, people, for instance, that don't have a completed uh, high school, that find it much easier to find, a, to find a job. And once they have a job, they can stay in a job similarly. It's much easier to find a job uh, in a tight labor market, for instance, if you have been to... Um, if you've been in prison in the past, which unfortunately a large number of people in the U.S. have, um, and so on. So I think there's very much this sense that um, running a tight labor market is not is much less inflationary than the Fed 
thought in the past, and it has very big benefits for weaker, economically weaker groups in society. And, and so this is a message uh, he is repeating. Uh, he's also repeating this message that since inflation has been too low, for a while below the Fed's objective of 2% inflation, as a central bank, you would like to have people's expectation of inflation being equal to your objective. And the Fed has a 2% uh, objective for inflation. The only way that you can get inflation expectations to settle at 2% is to run on average an inflation rate that's equal to 2%. And consequently, if this inflation has been too low for five, six, seven years, then you need to run inflation above 2% for, for a couple of years as well. Um, so the so Chair Powell has, in a number of different ways, signaled that monetary policy in the U.S. is not about to be tightened anytime, anytime soon. Um, so so uh, it's more of the same from the Fed. And Fed is very influential. If you are a central banker anywhere in the world, it's very difficult uh, to, to go wrong um, with the public, with the newspapers and so on, saying, well, we are we are doing something which is very similar to what the Fed is doing. So I think this, the Fed's views here will have a very, very big impact on central banks across across the world. So no policy tightening in the, in the near future, I don't think. Obviously, as sort of stimulus is applied, let's talk about an infrastructure bill, and um, and so on and so forth. And uh, I guess people are getting very excited about uh, the um, the next round of stimulus that's going to come along. How do you think over the next, um, you know, call it six to nine months and longer, do you think the Fed will be playing out? Obviously, it's very, very premature to even discuss it, but uh, I'm quite interested to, to get your thoughts on, um, you know, when the Fed may well start to be thinking about um, bringing the taper word in. Well, they have been thinking about that for, for a long time. I mean, as a central bank, there is a very large number of different contingencies that you have to think through. You don't want to be surprised if something is going on. Uh, so they will have been planning about how to do this uh, for, for some time. It has probably not reached a stage where the FOMC is involved in these the discussions, but I'm sure that there are a group of staff members someplace, um, probably led by some senior person, that have been working on this, been, been thinking about what happened uh, in 2015, when they raised the interest rate for the first time, and when they... Uh, and, been going through the whole the episode in 2013 when Bernanke started to talk about tapering, etc. Um, so you know they will be ha- they will have been working on this for for quite some time, but uh, they are of course dead scared that the, the, this will come out and people will misunderstand it. This is just ordinary contingency planning of the type any central bank would have to do. Uh, so I uh, I think it will take some time before they before they start. Uh, they're talking about it in public, right? Okay, and again, that's I think that's quite interesting. Uh, I guess it, there's a lot to play for uh, from now until you know the end of the year in terms of the economic stimulus and uh, um, or stimulus packages, obviously that are being talked about right now. And then it looks like there's going to be a follow-on on infrastructure as well later this year. Um, but uh, you know they may well wait for those clarity around those packages. Uh, before they do anything now um yes, yeah i think the thing if, if i may interrupt you there i think there's also a question of uh, what will um, happen to covid i mean the view i think the main scenario that most of us have in mind is that people covid will be will be, i mean could the covid vaccinations 
programs are proceeding very rapidly in a number of countries. And the second half of the year will look completely different from the first half of the year. But that may not be so. One could imagine there's a new version of the virus coming out or, um, yeah. So, so there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty also there. Mm, I think that's quite key. So really no change until those uncertainties of, uh, or there is some clarity around those uncertainties. The other question I would ask you was around the relationship between Yellen and Powell. Uh, obviously, um, Yellen was on the other side of the coin um, a few years back. How do you think that relationship will uh, will will develop um, you know, going forward? Because obviously, Janet Yellen will have a, a very deep understanding of what Powell's thinking at any given time. So uh, I think it will be probably be excellent. As a matter of fact, I think yeah. I mean, maybe the. Yellen would have wanted to remain as chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, but President Trump uh, didn't didn't let her. Um, and uh, but there is no antagonism between them. I think they are singing from the same hymn book, uh, if you like. So I think this will work um, very well. It's intriguing that when you talk to staff at the um, at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, they are extremely pleased with Chair Powell. And they are very happy to have him there at, uh, and so on. I'm sure they were very happy to have Janet Yellen there as chair before that. But I, I think this is, uh, uh, this will all work. Uh, this will all work very well. Mm. My, my longer term um, thought around this is that uh, given they often is the case, then given that they're on the same side, you know, does complacency develop at some point in the future, which is, uh, is always something that, uh, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's in my back drawer to think about. <laughs> so let's move on to um, some of the other central banks and uh, kind of what's going on uh, around the world. Let's start with um, the ECB. I guess everything is relatively quiet and, and on autopilot. Yes, I think that's right. I think ECB is, uh, is essentially on, uh, on autopilot for a while. Of course, they are worried about long interest rates uh, rising and they will talk they will talk about how concerned they are and so on. Perhaps they may do some minor change to their to their QE operations, etc. But but I think uh, I think uh, the ECB is is largely on on autopilot. This is not a financial crisis we are in right now. It's a crisis that has financial implications, but this is a, it's a health crisis, and the primary response will have to be. Um, uh, a fiscal policy, government spending, and so on and so forth. And that's a, that's these are the policies that we see being adopted across the world. So I think I think the, the ECB is, um, is yeah, yes, as you put it, is, is an autopilot, largely an autopilot. So keeping with the trend of um, central bankers moving into government, we had uh, Mario Draghi now as the Prime Minister of Italy. What what's your thoughts around that? So, I mean, Italy has had a history of central bankers or, or economists, I should say, who have been uh, who have been um, uh, prime minister. Governor Ciampi was prime minister in 1993-94, I think, and then Lamberto Dini was a senior member, a very senior member of the Bank of Italy staff, and I think was seen as the most likely governor or a person to replace Ciampi as governor. He was himself prime minister for a year or so in the mid 19 90s. And then, of course, uh, Mario Monti, who was also an economist, uh, who was an EU commissioner, he was um, he was prime minister for 
a year or two, uh, about 10 years ago or so. So Italy has a history of having a technocratic prime minister and they sort of they sort of stay in power for a year for a year or two, which um, this may be, of course, the average tenure of an Italian prime minister. <laughs> oh, no, that's but, full uh, term, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I think that's full term. So, I mean, I think with Draghi, I think people have extremely high expectations. I mean, he's sort of seen as a, as a superman, I think, yeah, by the public. And the concern, I think, is that, and, and the politicians are, are now happy to, being government, being in his government, etc., and he's gotten politicians onto his government. So it's not a fully technocratic government, and I think that's very, very important because you need to have the politicians in there because otherwise they will not take ownership or any of any of the policies that are being um, introduced. And my concern there is that something may go wrong, something may not happen the way people have been hoping it would happen. Um, there may be difficulties, and then there is a risk that various political parties would then step in and say, well, you know, this is not the way we want it, and uh, I, we felt for a long way that this was, for a long time this was not the right policy, or this policy was unlikely to, to work, and now it's not working, and I think it's time for, for us to take charge again. So I, I think that the, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, it, I mean, there's no guarantee right now that... Uh, uh, the Draghi government will last for a very long, for a very long time. It will depend critically on, I think, whether he's able to um, work something out uh, with the European Union and the ECB, which is sort of in the, in the, in it, well, I, I guess with the European Union, uh, which is sort of in Italy's, uh, in Italy's interest. I think in, in some ways Italy hasn't really punched above its weight, but rather has punched below its its weight. Uh, um, for a number of uh, for, for in the EU and in the ECB for a number of years, and if Draghi can sort of change that uh, that mood music a little bit, and I think that could have a big impact on his political fortunes um, in Italy. So it, it's simply too early to um, too early to say. There have been several, as to repeat, there has been several prominent central bankers and economists in Italy who've been prime minister, but they haven't lasted. I haven't lasted that long, I'm afraid. And uh, moving quickly on to the ECB's kind of green mandate. Um, obviously, we've talked about this before. Where do you think the, the direction of travel is there? Well, I think it is essentially impossible right now for, I mean, for a central bank to not be in favour of green policies and so on. Uh, and... Plainly, Madame Lagarde, the ECB president, is giving this a push. And that partially reflects the fact that these are very important questions. But I think it also partially reflects the fact that this is an area she feels particularly uh, comfortable with. She is not a monetary policy expert by training or by professional background. So I think this is something that she, she likes to push because she likes to sort of do her thing while she's at the at the ECB. So this is, uh, and I mean, popular opinion, of course, is in favor of this. So I think this will uh, this will move forward uh, for a while. My sense is that many of the of the national central bank governors may be a little bit more hesitant. Um, they are, uh, in many cases, long term central bankers. They probably find. It's a little bit difficult to uh, to abandon some of their previous views or previous dogma, if you like. Yeah. Um, so I can I can imagine that this uh, this may not um, 
this may not go very rapidly, but I think the direction of travel is uh, is is clear. We will see more more greening of the ECB, and but precisely at what rate and what will happen, I think it's it's a little bit hard to uh, hard to guess. I mean, one thing which I think is is clear: uh, the ECB and other financial regulators they can do a lot as standard setters. Uh, they can sort of define what, for instance, what is a green asset. Uh, what should we what should we classify as a green asset? Uh, um, how should uh, these things? Um, I mean, is there a need to adopt regulation and so on and so forth? I mean, they can support the growth of the green sector of the financial system as regulators and standard uh, standard setters. Um, and there, I'm sure they will do a lot. But whether we have any green monetary policy, I think is uh, is much less uh, much less clear. Mm, that's very interesting. I think the the three points I get there is is uh, Madame Lagarde in her comfort zone, the uh, the rest of the uh, national central bankers not in their comfort zone, and uh, and uh, the the byproduct may well be a um, would be as I think as you described it, uh, uh, set the agenda, set the standards, but but not really do much else. Yeah, for instance, there are people that say that that. Uh, the ECB could uh, could push for uh, financial regulations or banks to be forced to hold more capital against against the environmental risks and so on. But that's a little bit sort of dicier, I, I think. Um, they can push for financial risks to be to be um, uh, sort of, um, properly measured and, and properly taken into uh, taken into account. But it's a different things. I mean, once you have a risk and it's taken into account, can you do more than so? I, I, I'm not so. I'm not so sure. You know, they could push, for instance, to decide that in the pension fund, for instance, central banks put hold pension funds and have their own funds portfolios and so on. And in those portfolios, they can do as they like. They can say, well, we don't, don't want to hold any any polluting assets. But it could become harder. It could become harder uh, for them to do so in their. For instance, in their collateral practices, when banks want to borrow from the ECB, they use bonds issued by various governments and and, and, and corporations and so on as collateral, and it might be much harder for the for the ECB to say, well, you can't you, you can't use these bonds. It could be lots of for instance, it could be that in some countries a disproportionately large share of the uh, what is what can be pledged as collateral is actually brown brown bonds and you would generate a problem in that way and so on and so forth so so i think it's there is a limit to how fast this can this can go we will see action for sure but we will not see a complete sea change in uh, in the next year or two let's uh, go uh, slightly to the center towards um the swiss national bank <laughs> and um and 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 your thoughts there obviously uh, you know they're in a very interesting position at the moment they are in a very interesting uh, position uh, uh, at the moment. They are sort of, uh, they are sort of, in a sense, sort of managing sort of from uh, from day to day. I mean, they like to see a depreciation uh, of the Swiss franc, and then of course the, the euro. I mean, they've seen that in the last month or so. Um, uh, but they've been subject to a lot of political pressure. First of all in this area of, of, of greening of the central bank. And they did a, they made a very major announcement in December where they where they said we, they're not going to hold assets issued by essentially by coal, by the coal industry. Um, and that was the first sign we've seen that they've recently increased what they pay, uh, what they pay out in terms of their profits 
um, to the government. So the the SMB's portfolio is essentially it's it's, it's a trillion, it's a thousand billion around there. And they pay out in the past. They paid out two billion a year in profits, then four billion a year, and now this year they're paying out six billion a year in profits. Now, if you have, uh, if you manage a billion in assets, you really ought to be able to um, to pay to pay more than six billion a year to your to your to your owners. Um, so I suspect this will be re- remain a difficult. Uh, a difficult area. The SMB is by law required to have um, uh, to set aside, um, uh, you know, a capital or risk buffers uh, or capital against against risks and so on. And of course, if you have a billion in foreign currency and the exchange rate and your exchange rate appreciates, you could see a massive loss <laughs> in, in one in one in one year. And uh, as I said, by law they are required to have to have buffers, but the buffers are very large. Um, it, and, and the law is not clear on, uh, I mean, the law actually has not been tested. It's not clear exactly what, what these legal requirements are. So I foresee I foresee what will happen here is that the SMB will continue to be under pressure. There will be a number of people saying, well, your reserves are very big. You don't pay out very much. We have a big financial problem here resulting from COVID. And because of the debt break on borrowing in the public sector, um, and the government is not allowed to borrow too much, and and uh, and consequently, um, if um, if if you don't pay out more, we're going to have to have tighter fiscal policy, and that's not the right thing to have in the middle of this COVID crisis. So we'll see what happens, but they are not in an enviable um, in, in an enviable situation. I am I'm, I'm afraid. Is there obviously very very tricky problem and i guess it's a it's a high class problem isn't it because you've got a trillion trillion swiss francs of assets that you need uh, that you need management managing right so uh yes <laughs> i said i would definitely call it a high class high high class problem <laughs> well as you know if you have a trillion you know, uh, uh, us dollars or euros to manage you're essentially a sovereign wealth fund. These funds will not disappear very rapidly. And if you're a sovereign wealth fund, you will hold a very different portfolio from a central bank. I mean, central bank typically holds their foreign exchange reserves in a highly liquid form because they worry that they're going to have to uh, intervene and sell off their foreign exchange reserves. But of course, the SMB is not in that situation. If there's a foreign exchange crisis, then they will lead to a large inflow into Swiss francs. This is seen as a safe haven, the currency. So it would seem reasonable for the SMB to uh, try to pick up more yield. They hold 20% of the portfolio in shares, 80% in bonds, I think mainly US and uh, Euro bonds. The, the currency allocation, I think, is on the on the website. And as I remember, it's essentially euros and, and US dollars. Um, now, if you have a trillion to manage and you don't think you would, these funds would be used anytime so soon, you would probably uh, shift into, into equities to a much greater extent than 20%. And you may think of um, uh, also shifting into other assets such as um, property or private equity and so on. So a, a, um, a Swiss sovereign wealth fund would invest their funds I think, in a quite different way from uh, from what the SMB is doing. And in doing so, they would raise returns and would be in a better position to pay out to the um, to, to the owners, to the government and the cantons. Mm, so very, very, very interesting. We'll certainly watch that with a lot of interest. I think uh, certainly... Uh, 
anyone living in Switzerland wouldn't mind a, a slightly weaker currency. Or well, certainly anyone going to holiday in Switzerland wouldn't mind a weaker currency. Um, <laughs> I guess um, moving on to the Bank of England, and uh, again, it's very similar to profile to what the other central banks uh, are concerned about. And one question I wanted to ask you, which um, something that's been say, in plaguing me in the back of my mind, is that um, now that we do indeed have Brexit, um, and yes. if I think about policy pre-EU or the UK had a structurally much higher inflation rate than um, than Europe did or, or even the US. And one yes. of the things that's been sort of plaguing me over the last um, you know, few months is, you know, does the UK go back to its old norms uh, in terms of having that structurally higher inflation rate and then obviously structurally higher interest rate? Uh, and has, the, if you like, uh, being part of the EU led to a discipline that would that would not otherwise have have existed. Now this is a uh, this is an intriguing question because I don't think anyone has ever mentioned this. There's been a lot of discussion about the consequences of Brexit, but I have never seen anything in terms of what the consequences might be for monetary policy and inflation and interest rates and so on. Of course, there've been discussions about what this might be for the for the UK might might mean for the UK financial sector, but not for 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 monetary uh, policy. And I think you are you are right. In 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 in, uh, in raising this issue, uh, um, if you go back to 2004, when the EU ex- expanded and it welcomed ten new uh, members, in particular a number of countries in in Central and Eastern Europe, I think this uh, um, you know this included, for instance, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, and uh, and so and so on. Um, at that point in time, the UK was only uh, was one of three member states that decided to open its labour markets immediately to these new EU citizens. And my understanding was always that the Bank of England was urging on the Blair government, and they were saying that if you open up the labour market immediately uh, to the new, to nationals from these new EU member states, then that would tend to be disinflationary, because if you were to have a boom in the UK economy, uh, you would not have the ordinary sort of boom, uh, uh, tightening of labor markets, pushing up wages, pushing up inflation. You just have more people coming in from Eastern from Eastern Europe. Uh, so this would be, a, from a monetary policy perspective, uh, a very good idea. That that may or may not be true, but uh, it, it, that will also have to work in reverse. If you do make it harder for people to to come into the country, and I think that would be a consequence of of, of Brexit. Um, um, then it, it would seem to be more likely that you could have, if you were to have a real boom in the economy, that you might uh, you might run out of labour. Labour markets might turn very tight, and that would require firms to to raise wages to to compete for uh, for workers, and that would then restore the earlier price price um, wage price mechanism. So I do think there is something. To this, the uh, Brexit may have and may may mean in a sort of a return to, uh, not the return to UK sort of um, the high inflation of the 1970s. That was sort of a number of other factors uh, um, that played a role there. For instance, uh, we had, those were the years when we had very high unionisation rates all over Europe, and, and unions have become much less powerful 
uh, in over the last uh, three four decades. Um, but I think you could have more of a more of a risk that a, a boom will lead to tight labor markets, higher wages, and more inflation pressures. And also, if you think about the single market, um, if you were had a boom in in one country, then you could always just get get good goods from abroad. You could buy them uh, on the web and uh, and so on and so forth. So if you had a, a boom in any single country in the in the European Union the inflationary consequences of that boom would seem to be, uh, be smaller than otherwise. And um, so my suspicion is that, uh, I mean, clearly trade with the EU will fall, will, will sort of run, will be flow less smoothly after Brexit than before Brexit. Uh, although I think many of the problems that we've seen in the last month or two, most of those problems, many of those problems will be... Uh, overcome, I think, over, uh, over time. But I think there will be companies who are not going to be selling to the UK anymore, small companies, because it's not, it's, it's too complicated, and so on, and uh, uh, etc. And if that's the case, that then will raise the price-making power of UK, of UK firms in their home market. We can argue how big that increase will be, but I think the sign of it, I think, is clear. They will have more price-making power, and that will make them able to raise prices or better able to raise prices if you have a if you have a boom so i think that you're onto something here Moss. i think this is a, this is an aspect of brexit that no one has really been talking about the uk economy i think will be more inflation prone a boom in the uk economy will have have more of an impact on inflation a similarly recession in the uk economy would have uh, also more would tend to depress inflation more than uh, than in the past, so so this could be um, this could be important um, potentially. Mm, no, absolutely, it certainly has a huge significance for the gilt market, given that it's you know, consistently traded very tight to, to Europe um, and and through you know uh, the US ten uh, year, for example, or ten year gilt has been you know trading way below the US ten year. But you, you do wonder whether that should indeed be swapped around as it had done um you know um from from decades past so uh you know i think it's uh, yes. i think it's very interesting but but possibly also you know maybe in the short short to medium term maybe it's slightly better for the pound um given that uh, you know given that potential kind of interest rate differential starting to become uh, stronger yes i think this is a very interesting question i mean it's these type of underlying changes that I mean, they don't impact much on on uh, on market prices from one day to the next, or one month to the next. But over the time perspective, over five or ten years, it, we could be moving into quite a different UK economy, and we could be perhaps some of these empirical relationships that we have observed between spreads and different currencies and so on and so forth. They could become quite uh, yeah, these were, they could change quite quite a bit. So I think this is an, an issue that it's uh, it makes good sense to to delve into a little bit and think about and, and think about. Uh, I suspect many in the UK would like to to follow the Swiss example, <laughs> but but uh, you know certainly one to watch out for. You know, uh, very very carefully. At least you know, Switzerland has very porous borders, right? Where where unfortunately yes. the UK is still an island. Maybe the last. Um, Topic of uh, of the day is is we had um, you know Jay Wu uh, on uh, on the podcast recently and um, uh, he talked about uh, the Bank of Japan. Obviously, the Bank of Japan, as part of their policy, has been busy buying um, uh, ETFs or exchange traded funds 
and and the and the Japanese stock market essentially as part of their policy. He suggested that they they're not going to change anytime soon, but they've um, just surpassed uh, the 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 Japanese government pension fund in terms of ownership. Um, any any thoughts on that? Well, this is a highly unusual for a central bank to pile into the uh, <laughs> to the uh, to the equity market. Uh, I mean, central banks are very hesitant to do this because they worry about the the risks that they will sort of you know you will have a large sell off in, in in equities. They would look they would look uh, they would look stupid. Um, so um, yeah, I suspect that this. I mean. Uh, the problem here is that buying equities, I mean, if you buy government bonds, well, they mature and they give you an opportunity to sort of gradually sort of uh, get out of the situation. Yeah. When, when you buy equities, that doesn't happen. So you need to actually start actively selling these things or, or, or doing something with them. And that's a much harder problem, I think. Um, I can't imagine that they will want to talk about this problem now. I suspect that they will continue to buy equities for some time to shore up the economy and and to try to move inflation to, towards the 2% target, which, which they have been trying to reach now for, I think, almost 30 years. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens, what they will do with these, uh, with these uh, equities. I know the Hong Kong Monetary Authorities um, bought uh, equities uh, during the Asian financial crisis, during there was an episode of strong pressure on the on the um, on the Hong Kong dollar, and I, as, I, as I remember, it what happened was that uh, market participants positioned themselves in the stock market as a, a stock futures, and then they then then they um, sold off the Hong Kong dollar uh, for uh, for U.S. dollars, and then what happened was that the Hong Kong dollar weakened, and then the uh, consequence of the Hong Kong dollar weakening in the currency board is that the Hong Kong Montreal Authority was required to step in and sell U.S. dollars um, to, um, uh, to um, in the foreign exchange market to sustain the exchange rate peg. And as they did so, interbank liquidity shrunk and interest rate jumped up. And of course, that the stock market sold off. So these speculators made a lot of money in the stock market. And then that's when the uh, Hong Kong Monetary Authority stepped in and started buying shares. And certainly when I was there, I think that's still the case. They still have a portfolio, an equity portfolio mm-hmm. of, some, of some forms. It, uh, it was decided to keep uh, a portfolio there. So I suspect that these equities on the Bank of Japan's balance sheet might stay there for a very long time. It would not be, it would not be easy to sell off such a gigantic position. Um, yeah, not easy. So this is, uh, I think, uh, it's one of these things that um, when you sort of step in and start pursuing this policy, you may not necessarily always think about how you will undo it uh, when the time comes to do this. So, so this could be, um, this could be quite complicated, quite a sticky situation uh, for the Bank of Japan in the future. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think it probably is a candidate for a sovereign wealth fund. <laughs> In this, yes, yes, in the, exactly. In, the, exactly. In, the, in, the, in this sort of situation, well, all, all I can say, are, you know, Nikkei at uh, around thirty thousand two hundred, uh, they're obviously sitting on uh, on a lot of gains. It's been a, yes. a spectacular investment uh, over the course of the last, I guess, uh, six or you know, I guess six or seven years now. 
so, 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 Stefan, thank you very much for uh, for thank this you. walk down fun. Central Bank and uh, Economic Lane. Um, but uh, it was it was absolutely fascinating, and uh, certainly um, um, lots of for us to to think about, and certainly uh, you know write about as well. I guess um, some some very interesting themes uh, that were discussed today. So, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. That was fun. Now that was uh, uh, Stefan Gerlach, who is Chief Economist for EFG. That's the end of the episode today. Thank you for listening and we'll speak again soon.